This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. From WMPG, this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and today we continue our series on post-traumatic stress disorder among women who have served in the military. Although military sexual trauma, often referred to as MST, is the leading cause of PTSD among female veterans, the Veterans Administration rejected two out of three MST claims between 2008 and 2010. One of the reasons for this is that many of the survivors did not feel safe enough to report the crime at the time of the assault, making it difficult later to prove that it happened. The Ruth Moore Act, which has passed in the U.S. House of Representatives but not yet in the Senate, would make it easier for survivors of military sexual trauma to have their report of an assault be taken seriously. It states that survivor testimony that a rape has occurred should be counted as evidence of the assault. This is, in fact, the current standard for reports of combat trauma. Ruth Moore, the woman for whom this legislation is named, was raped by her commanding officer while serving in the Navy, and once again after she'd reported it. She was told to forget about it if she wanted a career, and eventually discharged from the military with a diagnosis of a personality disorder. She told this story on last week's show, which you can listen to on our website, safespaceradio.com. Today we'll be hearing part two of my interview with Ruth Moore, in which she talks about her 27-year struggle to receive acknowledgement and benefits from the VA, and to heal from her traumatic experiences. It was really a series of failed job attempts or employment attempts that led me to the point of reconnecting and trying to get help from the VA. And over and over and over again, the VA would not acknowledge that the assault happened seven times. They wouldn't acknowledge that it happened, and they kept validating the idea that I was crazy and borderline personality disorder. So you attempt to get help from the VA seven times. Yes. When you say that, what do you exactly mean? Do you mean you like made an appointment and you asked to find a therapist and they said, no, you're not eligible? Or like, what do you mean by those seven times? <laughs> you know, that could be a question to last for hours. But to make it brief, I filed for disability back in 1993 and I was denied. They said that I had made up this whole incident overseas. Then I applied in 2003, and I was partially granted but denied for other things. And the funny thing was, every time I applied and was denied, they would validate something earlier or they would counteract something earlier. It was so inconsistent. They were constantly stepping back and forth across the line and trying to find a reason not to, to grant me, you know, disability. So emotionally, I was tore apart. Every time I tried to get help and file, I was so invalidated and so traumatized, re-traumatized, trying to get this out. No one believed me. I walked into the Togus VA. They didn't believe a word I said. And I said, why aren't you listening to me when I tried to get vocational rehabilitation for jobs, job training? And they said, oh, well, you have traumatic brain injury. I said, no, I don't. And they said, well, that's what you're coded right here. And I said, no, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. 
come to find out when they entered the data, they made a miscue, one keystroke. And so they thought that I, I was literally making it up because I had traumatic brain injury and I didn't have cognitive recall. So these are the types of things that invalidated. We literally had to pick up and move and go to Vermont in 2008 for me to get the specialized care that I needed. And that's when it started to happen and things started to fall in place and I was validated. The fact that you were not only not given treatment right away, but in fact were subjected to what I would propose to you as a whole other layer of trauma. You know, you were humiliated, you were blamed, you were shamed, you were silenced. The consequence, I mean, you, you tell me, what, what, what do you think was the consequence for you emotionally of not being believed again and again and again? Emotionally, I can say that I distanced myself from trusting people. It was very hard for me. I, I was isolated. I pulled back. I didn't trust people. Going through the divorce with my former spouse, that was traumatic in itself. Essentially, I was with him, married to him for 12 years. I was blamed for being raped. You know, the emotional trauma. Did he, did he also blame you? yes. Eventually. At first, no. But when, you know, things became hectic, you know, it, it happened. But he was also emotionally abusive, and I didn't realize it at the time until further along into my marriage. And things came to a head when he was separated from the military medically. He had some injuries, but he picked me up and he threw me up against the wall when I tried to stop him from drinking and taking narcotics. And that was my turning point, my spiritual healing, when I stood up for myself. Because I called his mother and I said, I need to leave. I need to come over there. I need to be safe. And um, I will never forget what she said. She said, you shouldn't have provoked him. And it was like the floodgates of personal hell opened up. And I knew right there and then I was a classic victim. And I wasn't going to be a victim anymore. And I got in my van and I went and I lived in the woods and I was homeless. I just left. My own parents didn't believe me. My own parents said, well, he would never do that. Very similar to the military. He's such a good man. He would never do that. And I knew that I could do it on my own. And I did. It's a profound story of like really touching something very, very deep inside yourself. Yeah. And some it sounds like you became clear, like this degree of clarity that was just unwavering. It really and truly was. It was almost surreal how everything just narrowed into one pinpoint focus that said, you don't deserve this. You are a human being. You deserve better. Now, we've talked about the emotional piece of, you know, wanting to give up. I thank God that I have such a strong support in my present husband. So, at, you know, enormous personal cost to yourself. Your in-laws and your parents aren't believing you. You're living in a van. I was working migrant labor, essentially. I was working for a blueberry company. And that's when I met Butch. 
And he was, you know, checking me out from a distance, and I wanted nothing to do with men. <laughs> I was avoiding him like the plague. And he basically, you know, made small talk, and we started talking over the fall. And he invited me in to uh, teach him how to make an apple pie. And I never left. Literally, I never left. He never let me leave. He never let you leave? Well, not really, in a way. <laughs> that sounds a little yeah. scary, given this no. conversation. But he he really, you know, he listened. Was he the first person that you were close to who really believed you? Yes. And what was that like, to be believed for the first time? Scary. I didn't know if I could trust him. It was years before I opened up to everything. But, I mean, there were times where I would drop a can of coffee and spill it on the floor, and I would just sit there and cry. And he'd get down on the floor, and he'd sweep it up with me, and he's like, it's only a can of coffee. And he'd give me a hug. See, when someone is in an abusive situation, they're constantly looking for abuse or expecting abuse. So it took, I would say, a good five to six years before we really connected. I actually was doing counseling and therapy when I was with him. And it took me a very long time to learn that not all men are abusive. There are some good men out there. And he really and truly embodies someone who is caring and generous and loving and kind and selfless. It was never about him. He understood it was about me, and he helped me by saying, you need to go to counseling if this is going to work. We have something good here, but we need to make it better. And he never blamed me. He always understood that if I was having a difficult time, you know, there was a reason for it. It wasn't because I was difficult. It definitely wasn't because I was crazy. He understood. So then, you know, we, we've been together. And occupation job outlook here was really bad. I couldn't get the help from the VA. We went to Vermont. We both had teaching jobs. And that's when I started reaching out to the Vermont VA. And when I met this therapist, she was a sexual assault coordinator, but she was also a therapist and a retired teacher. She looked at my record and she says, this doesn't make sense. And when we testified, she said it best. She says, when we know that someone has been sexually assaulted, we look in the record for what's not there because we know the records are tampered with. And if we don't see certain things in that record, we believe the person because their record has been tampered with. So she was the first person who was able to look at your record and see that parts of it, the key parts of it had been removed. And you're a, you're a therapist. Imagine a six-inch record she audited page by page. Can you imagine doing that? She was very dedicated. She believed in me. Thank goodness for her. Yes. And then she started setting me on the path to helping me. And part of that path was exploring my Native American heritage and my spirituality, which had been denied my whole life by my mother, and when I started going to um, the powwows in Vermont and I started meeting with other Native Americans, that's when they recognized the sister or the trauma within my soul. And that's when we started reconnecting and helping me find the strength that I needed. 
So ultimately, sort of reclaiming part of your identity and your own spiritual heritage and practice was vital to your own healing. It was. Maybe you could tell me now the story of legislatively how you came to be such a powerful advocate for survivors of military sexual trauma. It actually, it's really nothing as profound and as glorious as people would think. I was terrified when I went into D.C. I first... Well, wait, let's back up. Like, how did you even get to be testifying in D.C.? <laughs> I was working with my therapist here in Maine because we moved back after the jobs failed. And Shelley Pingree, um, what a wonderful soul, she was doing an inquiry into sexual assault in the military. And I asked my counselor, I said, Dale, do you think I can do this? This, I can make a difference here. I know I can. And he looked at me and he says, you will become a lightning rod. Do you want this attention? And part of me said no. And I said, well, I don't know. So I went down tentatively and talked with Shelley Pingree. And um, they did a television series, uh, a wonderful, wonderful interview for television. But I did it anonymously. I didn't want people to know who I was. They blacked out my face. They changed my name. They hid my voice. And I told a few people about it, but not a lot. And, you know, this is teary for me. Um, up until that point, my whole life, I had always been victimized or accused or blackballed or blamed after that segment had aired, nobody blamed me. People started hugging me and saying, thank you. They started telling me how courageous I was. And so it's a complete paradigm shift. After years of victimization, all of a sudden it turns into validation. And I get a call from Washington, D.C., from the House Senate Affairs or the House Veteran Affairs Committee. And they're like, um, is this Ruth Moore? And I was like, yes, it is. And they're like, well, we're the House Veterans Affairs Committee and we're doing a hearing on. And Shelley Pingree thought that you might like to. Would you like to? And it's like I could literally hear Handel's Messiah in my brain. And it's like, yes. That was it. So, yes, I went to Washington, D.C., and I summoned every bit of courage I had. And it really wasn't chemical courage, no lorazepam or anything. I was good. And I sat right there, and I looked at that whole panel up on the, the diadem, and I'm just sitting there looking at them, quaking. My husband does his therapy on my back, and I sit up, and I tell my story. And I talked about 27 years of fighting, 27 years of emotional victimization, institutional victimization, organizational victimization. And the funny thing was, the gentleman behind me, if you ever get the chance to look at the tapes, the gentleman behind me, Mr. Murphy from the VA, was sitting there squirming in his seat. And he did not like my testimony. And the minute he gets up there, he makes a flip, glib comment. Well, I guess I know how, how people's cases are being decided now. It's by what's not in the record or something very similar to that. 
and the committee tore him apart verbally, asking why the VA hadn't fixed it, why things are still going on. And that was validating. Two days after I testified, someone in the VA opened up my record and denied me again. Talk about retaliation. It's just too coincidental. And they said, oh, this is just a systemic check. You know, we were just doing this. No. And then we started. When you said denied you again, like at this point, I thought you already had benefits. What are they denying you? I wasn't at 100% of benefits. I still have issues. I look perfectly fine. I don't do well in crowds. I don't do well in stores. I don't do well with lights and sounds. So there are still some issues that I have to live with and that I needed help with and I couldn't get help for. I was at technically 70% rating disability, but that only gives you so many types of helps and benefits. I was still being denied other benefits. And then Shelly Pingree's staff said, wait a minute here, Ruth, what's going on? And I said, they made a mistake, a clear and undeniable error back in 93 when they said, I had PTSD, but they couldn't connect it to anything that happened in the service. They never looked at my medical record, which had the chlamydia report in it. And so a year and a half after this, I'm outside in my goat pen, cleaning up my goats. I'm knee deep in mud. It was, you know, just a little bit later in the year than now. And I get a call, and uh, Butch says, I think you want to come in for this. And I was like, okay. So I come in, and they said, well, hi, this is so-and-so from the VA, and I have so-and-so from the VA, and we have Jim Pinot and, you know, on the line from Shelley Pingree's office, and we want to tell you that we've been reviewing your record, and we want to tell you that we made a mistake, and for the VA to admit they made a mistake, I dropped to my knees. I was like starting to shake. And they said, we realized that we did not use your service record back in 1994. And we're very sorry to hear them apologize after all these years. And they said, so what we're going to do is we are going to fix this and we're going to rate you back to 1993. And that's really when I almost hit the ground because then they said, and even though the money can't fix it, we're going to pay you retroactively. And that's where it hit hard because it was never about the money, Anne. It was about being validated. But it's also been 27 years of invalidation being blamed, pathology, like, could that help you heal? Emotionally, it helped me heal in some way. Will I ever heal from the damage in my brain? No. But emotionally, that gave me the mindset that I really wasn't crazy. I really was a person of worth. I really did have a position in life. I had purpose or meaning in my life. Um, and it gave me the outlook that I don't have to hang my head and say, I'm a disabled veteran. I was discharged because I'm crazy. 
I'm a disabled veteran. I was medically discharged. How different is that? I served my country with honor. And there are certain traits that military sexual trauma survivors have, whether they're male or female. What traits are those? I think the first is each has a devalued sense of identity. That is the number one thing. There is a lot of emotional insecurity. You're looking at people who either try to hide themselves from public view, or they'll actually make themselves stand out so no one will forget them, but no one will see what's really underneath. It's kind of like a facade that they put up, a wall to protect themselves. They're both kinds of hiding. Exactly. And that is the number one trait that all survivors of sexual assault, whether it's military or whether it's civilian, every survivor tends to have one of those traits because they're trying to protect themselves in some way, shape, or fashion. They're trying to protect themselves. We don't need to hide ourselves. We have endured trauma and horrific things upon our persons but we are still a part of humanity. And being there for my brothers and sisters is really why I'm here today speaking, but also why we started Internity. So tell me what Internity does. Internity is an organization, and we do many different things. We assist veterans in crisis. We either assist them directly or we refer them to people that can help them directly. We advocate for those survivors. A lot of times, survivors cannot communicate clearly or effectively. A lot of times their emotions come in and people will see, you know, a, a scared person, they see them as angry. So they don't understand the differences. And what we do is we advocate for that veteran until they learn how to advocate successfully for themselves. And that advocacy can be as simple as standing in a grocery line and helping someone when they start to cycle up, or it could be something as profound as calling a, a, a hospital and the Veterans Administration and saying, Jane Doe is not getting the help that she needs. She has tried X, Y, and Z. Who there can help her and how can that happen? What will this help look like so Jane Doe does not get a ticket for disruptive behavior? So is the word out among veterans? Do they know about your organization? They do. We have it online um, with www.internityonline.org. We also have Facebook pages set up. We did um, a tour across the United States last year. But, you know, instead of just assisting and advocating, we educated our veterans. We met them boots on the ground in their cities. We educated the veterans about the resources. We connected them with resources. And then the last part of eternity is we empower our veterans. So we assist, we advocate, we educate, and we empower. And as we empower our veterans, what we do is we call, we call it fading um, in the behavioral field. So we give them the structure that they need. We teach them how to do these things. And as they gradually practice these things and gain confidence, we withdraw a little bit at a time. So as far, you know, as they became more confident, they move forward, we pull backwards. So we're here, they can still see us, but they know that they're on, they're, they're flying now. It's kind of like a mother bird watching her, her babies fly for the first time. It's really good to see someone who was traumatized 
find the confidence within themselves and start to become independent and connect with their families and their communities again. So you have been apologized to by the military. They've acknowledged that they were wrong. You've had the bogus diagnosis stripped from you finally, and you've been given 100% disability retroactively. So you've been awarded the financial support that you deserve. Is your rapist behind bars? I was hoping you would come to this. No. My rapist was allowed to retire with full honors. There is no statute of limitations for rape. I have been asked, why don't I press charges? I know exactly where he is. Most people will find their rapist online. And this, you know, it's still mind-blowing for a lot of people. But for my internal psyche, I believe that there is a higher sense of accountability. And this man, has many things going on in his life. The first of which is he's dying. He has emphysema and a number of other diseases. I could never have punished him, and the judicial system could never have punished him so bad as he is suffering now. And the other factor is I don't want to be the person to make his wife, his children, and his grandchildren aware that he is a rapist. That would destroy not just him, that would destroy three generations of his family and the respect and the love that they have for him. I don't know whether he's changed or not. I really don't give a rat's behind about whether he's changed. I want nothing to do with the man. But I believe in karma, and I believe that he is enduring a far greater, more painful existence than I ever could. I've suffered for 27 years. He's dying. I don't want to be the person to destroy his family. So as I hear you, part of me feels so torn. Like I feel, part of me feels incredibly moved and respectful of your non-punitiveness and your wish not to hurt his family. And part of me feels anxious about his potential for repetition with other victims because so many, not all certainly, but so many rapists are repeat offenders. And how have you made sense of that in your mind? If I didn't know that he were dying and he were suffering immeasurably at this point in time, my outlook might be different. I have angry times. Oh, I don't deny I have angry times where I just sit there in the bathtub and say, why me? I never asked for this. I never wanted this to happen. And my own personal value and faith is that something good can come of this because I can help prevent this from happening to others. With this man, if he were not enduring what he's enduring now, if he were of stronger constitution, my focus might be different, but I know that at this point in his life, he can never do to others what he has done to me. Right, and all those years when you were not being believed, when he was healthier, you didn't have the power to put him behind bars. I didn't. But he made some really bad life choices. I mean, let's face it, 
The man gave me chlamydia. Okay, that was a bad choice from the get-go. <laughs> you know, it, it, he has done so much to hurt his own body and his own soul. I have a, a, a different faith, a higher power. I have friends who are Wiccan. I have friends who are, are Christian-based. I have friends who are Native, you know, American traditions. And ultimately, I believe that we are responsible for our own destinies, and we are responsible for the choices that we make. We make the choices. We don't choose the consequences. Ruth Moore, I feel like I've had just such an extraordinary opportunity to hear the story of you, you know, going from being this woman who wasn't believed by anyone, who had the courage to go, to leave, even if that meant living in your van in the woods, and has become an advocate for thousands of veterans like yourself, and it's really doing so much to improve people's lives. Thank you so much for your work and for being my guest today on Safe Space Radio. It was an honor, and thank you for having me. So if you want to learn more about Ruth's work, I'm going to direct you again to internityonline.org. And if you like this show, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And if you want to learn more about trauma, we also have a whole series on trauma that aired in the winter of 2010 to 11, which you can find along with all of our past episodes at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.